Have you ever started watching a film halfway through and tried to pick up the plot line? It's really difficult, isn't it? Uh, Sometimes Tissa will be watching Sherlock. Do any of you watch that? And I'll sit down right in the middle of it and I have to ask so many questions to catch up. And Tissa's very patient to a point. I normally realise that I've got to stop asking questions before I quite got the gist of the story. And reading the Bible without understanding the book of Genesis can be a little bit like sitting down to watch a film that's already halfway through. It's really hard to follow the overarching narrative, the plot line, if you like, if we haven't got to grips with this book. So over the next 10 weeks or so, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Genesis. And you might be wondering, well, what happened uh, to chapter 1? Why why we started with chapter 2? Well, uh, a number of weeks back, we did actually look at chapter 1. I think it was on the 23rd of April. So if you want to catch up and hear that sermon, you'll be able to find that online. Uh, And if you were here for that sermon, you'll uh, perhaps remember me saying that it's really important that we understand the genre of a text uh, before we start reading. In other words, we need to understand what kind of writing it is. Is it poetry? Is it history? Is it biography? What is it? Well, the first part of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 give us two quite different accounts of creation. Uh, So, for example, chapter 1, we see that plant life was created on day 3 and human beings on day 6. In other words, uh, plant life came before human beings. But then we turn to chapter 2 and we read this. It says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. And then a little bit further on, then the Lord God formed a man. So in chapter 2, we see uh, that uh, human beings came before plant life. So from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we seem to have a very different order of things. But why is that? Are we to suppose that the author of Genesis 1 and 2 didn't spot these obvious differences? Of course not. This is a cleverly crafted, and more uh, to the point, a God-inspired piece of writing. The key to making sense of this is to understand the genre. What kind of text is it? How are we meant to understand it? Well, I believe the best way to describe these two accounts of creation from Genesis 1 and 2 is as historic parable. Historic parables that are designed to work together to give us a fuller understanding of creation. However, it's important to clarify uh, that Genesis contains more than one uh, genre more than one type of writing. I'm not saying that the whole of the book of Genesis takes the form of historic parable. Uh, I can't stress that enough. Uh, But but let's be clear. Um, The fact that something is a parable does not imply that it's any less true. Jesus taught in parables. Let's take the parable of the Good Samaritan. Is that parable true? Yes, because it tells us that we are to love even those that we perceive as our enemies. Ah, you might say. But did the sequence of events as described in that parable actually happen? I don't know. It's irrelevant because we know that a parable can be true without being literally true. So what's the difference between a parable and a a historic parable? Well, a parable describes something that didn't necessarily happen. 
So with the parable of the Good Samaritan, it doesn't really matter whether a man got robbed on the way to Jericho or whether two Jews of high standing passed him by on the other side of the road when he lay there injured or that um, a despised Samaritan came and cared for him. It doesn't matter because Jesus is revealing moral and theological truth as opposed to historic truth. Genesis 1 and 2, on the other hand, reveal moral, theological and historic truth. They are historic parables because God did speak heaven and earth into being. God did make mankind in his image. It's only when they get down to the precise details that they become parabolic. We shouldn't be surprised that God inspired the author of Genesis 1 and 2 to write in parables because we know that Jesus taught in parables. It's uh, one of the main ways that Jesus got his message across. If Genesis 1 and 2 are parables designed to reveal a deeper truth, a deeper reality, then there can be no contradiction between them. They are designed to work together. Do you know, I'm glad that the Bible doesn't begin with a scientific textbook. Have any of you ever tried to read Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time? Uh, I got about two pages in and I was completely bamboozled. Uh, Let's be thankful that through the Bible, God speaks to us about creation in a way that we can actually understand and make sense of. And today we're looking at a specific part of God's creation, us. What does this account of Adam and Eve reveal about us? What does this account tell us about what it means to be human? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 make it very clear that we're made to live in relationship, in relationship with God, in relationship, in a sense, with creation itself, and in a relationship with one another. And so we're going to look at each of those things in turn. So firstly, we're made to be in relationship with God. In fact, the relationship between human beings and God is meant to be so close that we're created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When we talk about being made in God's image, of course, we don't mean that we look like God. Rather, we have the ability to reflect many of God's attributes. In other words, we have the capacity to love and to nurture, to plan, to reason, to be creative, to relate and communicate at the deepest level. A few weeks back, we saw that only Jesus fully reflects the image of God, but each of us has the capacity to reflect something of God's image. So God has made us uh, relational in order that we can be in relationship with him. What's more, being made in God's image mean that we are God's representatives in the world. Do you know that for uh, thousands of years, kings, queens and emperors have had their image stamped on the coinage or the currency? Uh, In the ancient world, before photography or television or even printing, it was a good way to make sure that everyone knew what the ruler looked like. Their image would be recognized by everyone in the kingdom or empire or whatever it was. And it was God's intention that he would be recognized through human beings who would reflect his goodness and glory and be his representatives in the world. 
Needless to say, human beings do not do a very good job of reflecting God's image. But that is not the way it was meant to be. And as we've seen uh, in recent weeks, the church is called to reflect God's image and uh, to reveal his character to the world. But what we learn from Genesis is that every human being, no matter how depraved, has the capacity to reflect God's image. A lot of people struggle with low self-esteem. Uh, it's a sad fact that uh, many people see themselves as essentially worthless. If only they could see that they are made in the image of the living God and they have the potential to reflect his glory. Being made in God's image means that we have intrinsic value. We are valuable to God. So we're made to reflect God's image. We're also made to be dependent on God. For a start, human beings are dependent on God for life. God formed the man and breathed life into his nostrils. Uh, We see that God placed uh, human beings in a garden, presumably for their protection. Uh, God provided food. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And the garden was watered by a river that separated into four headwaters. All this highlights God's provision and humankind's dependence. But so often we don't like the idea of dependency. We fight to be independent. Now, I can't remember whether I shared this or not. Um, Perhaps I have. But um, when I was a child, if I didn't like what my parents were saying, I really resented being so dependent on them. And there was one occasion when my mum was insisting that I wore the Superman T-shirt. I really didn't like the Superman T-shirt. And so in a bid for total autonomy, I ran away. I ran away, still wearing the Superman (laughs) T-shirt. And at first, it seemed quite liberating. I walked for uh, six or seven kilometres to a place called Pitch Hill and uh, had a wonderful day uh, playing in the woods and living off raspberries. And then it started to get dark and uh, I made a little bed of ferns and I went to sleep. And the next thing I knew, I woke up in a very dark wood, cold and hungry and a long way from home. Remember, I was seven or eight. All of a sudden, independence didn't seem quite so attractive. And it's so often the case that we don't want to play by God's rules. We, we think he's trying to cramp our style, we, so we run away from God. We declare our independence. We think that we can get by without him. But this will always lead to all kinds of problems. And I don't just mean uh, for us as individuals. I mean for humanity in general. In our highly individualistic culture, dependency is often seen in very negative terms. And independence, well, that's almost a virtue. Genesis 2 challenges that way of thinking by showing that we are made to be dependent on a loving and benevolent God. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, God provides and we steward. Which brings us to our relationship with creation itself. Verse 5 gives us two reasons for the absence of of shrubs and plants. The first is that God hadn't yet sent any rain. And the second is that there was no one to work the ground. And what this tells us is that we human beings have been given work to do. We're to harness creation's full potential so that even more life can flourish. 
The first account of creation in chapter 1 talks about us ruling over creation. But if we are God's image bearers, then surely our rule should reflect God's character. And that means we should lovingly work for the benefit of all creation. Again, we often see work as a negative thing. Whenever I used to take the tube in London, if it was a weekday, uh, the tube would be packed with people heading into work. And I often used to think how miserable everyone looked. If work was a good thing, you would never know it by looking at their faces. And we often hear that phrase, living for the weekend, as if work is something we've just got to get through so that we can get on with the real business of living our lives. But again, that is not how it was meant to be. Work was meant to be purposeful and fulfilling, a joy undertaken in partnership with God for the benefit of all creation. It's a sad fact that humankind has often sought to exploit creation for short-term gain. And since the Industrial Revolution, which began in the middle of the 18th century, uh, we've had um, a huge capacity to do untold damage to our environment. This is, of course, a global problem. And it's easy to think, well, you know, what difference can I make? But it doesn't make sense for us to relinquish our God-given responsibility to care for creation just because it seems like too big a task. My family and I like to go for a walk around Springfield Lake. And uh, often I'll carry a plastic bag to pick up some rubbish along the way. And admittedly, I do sometimes get carried away with this. Uh, The limit came for Tissa when I was holding Caleb upside down by his ankles so he could pick up plastic bottles out of the lake. Uh, Caleb loved it. I got a few odd looks from uh, passers-by. And I know that this doesn't make a huge difference in the overall scheme of things. But surely we ought to do something. We've been given the responsibility of caring for this world. Surely we ought to do something. I mean, if everyone cared about creation, we probably wouldn't have tons of rubbish washing up on beaches on islands in the Pacific. We probably wouldn't have whales washing up on beaches with their stomachs full of car parts and plastic. Uh, Of course, there are many other environmental concerns besides waste, but I'm using a specific example to draw our attention to the fact Uh, that we have a responsibility uh, to be good stewards of creation. We're meant to help this world reach its full potential, not destroy it. Genesis reveals the kind of relationship that we were made to have with creation, and it stands as a stark reminder that something has gone desperately wrong. So finally, let us consider what Genesis 2 has to say about our relationship with one another and particularly the relationship between men and women. Verse 18 says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The helper, of course, being uh, the woman, Eve. Now, this word helper doesn't denigrate Eve or women in general. Do you know that the word that's used for helper is most commonly used to refer to God himself within the Bible? And then we have this beautiful picture of Eve being formed Uh, from Adam's rib, from his side. And this picture uh, helps us to see that men and women belong side by side in partnership. But it's far more profound than that. Let's look again at chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so it is 
that male and female, man and woman together reflect God's image. Now, this doesn't mean that we've all got to be married to reflect God's image. It means for humanity to reflect God's image. There must be male and female. We talked about dependency earlier. Well, men cannot exist without women, and women cannot exist without men. I'm talking generally in society. Uh, We are interdependent image bearers. Suppose I said to you, I want you to draw me a picture of a cross, but you're only allowed to use one straight line. And so you draw a cross as best as you can with one straight line. Do you think anyone would recognize what you've drawn? Of course not. They just see one straight line. To draw a cross, you need two straight lines. You can't do without the horizontal. You can't do without the vertical. So it is with humanity. For humanity to bear God's image, there must be male and female. And then verse 23 to 24 describes, uh, in a way, the first wedding. It says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And what we see in the creation account in Genesis 1 is a series of binaries. So you have heaven and earth. You have sea and and dry land. You have light and dark, day and night, all the way through to male and female. What we see here is a series of complementary pairs that are designed to work together. And that is in the first instance where we get our Christian understanding of marriage from. So we've seen that human beings were created to have a certain kind of relationship with God, with creation, and with one another. Men and women together are meant to be a reflection of God's character out into the world. They've been placed in the garden, given the task of creating beauty and order so that creation can meet its full potential. Now, there's a part of this passage that we cannot overlook if we're going to understand the overarching narrative of the Bible. And we find it in verse 9. It says, In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to come back to the tree of life next week. But what about the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What does that represent? Well, quite simply, it represents choice, free will. The word Eden means paradise. And God has generously given Adam and Eve all that they need. He's defined what is good and bad, and he's given them a clear framework within which to work. But God is not going to hold them to this by coercion, manipulation, or force. God wants to have a loving relationship with them. And as we all know, you cannot force someone to love you. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil poses a question. Are Adam and Eve going to trust God's definition of good and evil? Or will they seize autonomy and try to define good and evil for themselves? The introduction of this tree is a pivotal point in the narrative, and even more so when Eve is presented uh, with that dilemma whether to eat the fruit or not. It's like that scene in The Matrix where Neo is uh, offered a, a blue and a red pill. Everything is riding on this. If Adam and Eve eat the tree's fruit, they'll be rebelling against God and turning their back on the giver of life and so embracing death. 
And that is why God says to them, do not eat from that tree. If you eat from it, you will die. And next week, we're going to see how this story develops. And we're going to try and understand why it is that humankind doesn't have the sort of relationship with God, with creation, and with one another that we were made to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that we can learn so much from this early part of Genesis about who we are as human beings, your purpose for us, the kind of relationship we're meant to have with you, uh, with one another, with creation. And we pray, Father, that uh, all of us as individuals and even more so as a church will work to restore that relationship. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will fill us with your spirit, breathe that life into us, that we can more and more as we go through life, restore all three of those crucial relationships for which we were created. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.